Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I hope your calculations are correct. Our calculations are always correct, for we are gigantic brains. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. And I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. I'm going to tell you a story. episode we in our second and probably third segments are going to have molly crockett uh, we're going to talk to her well a couple of things first of all about her work but also she's become famous um, ted <laughs> famous famous at our level of famous like. yeah famous at our level of famous or more specifically your level of famous no no i should say that sounded wrong she's more famous than me now but it's fame it's still science fame <laughs> It's science fame, right? It's science she's, fame. She's not like one of the Olsen twins or, you know, Johnny Depp or anything like that. Not that kind of famous. I, I do want to talk a little bit about what happened in Boston because that is my hometown. And, well, let me first say a couple of things about the event as it happened. If you're not from Boston, you didn't grow up there. Patriot's Day. Yes, yeah, I had no, I had no real sense of what Patriot's Day was. So Patriots Day is a day it's it's a very unique holiday because only kids from Boston get the day off, right? Huh. So it's yeah. like a national holiday, but it's not a national holiday. It's a local holiday, but the whole city gets it, right? So right. there's no schools, businesses are closed, banks are closed, and it's, it's like a Jewish holiday at an Ivy League university. Exactly. (laughs) You know, there's two big things that happened. There's the Boston Marathon, which is a beautiful, great event. I'll say a little bit about why in a second. But also there's a Red Sox game that starts like before 11. You wake up in a couple hours. You can go see a Red Sox game or watch a Red Sox game. And then you can head over and catch the end of the Boston Marathon. And all of this is happening. Boston's actually a pretty small town. It's all happening very close together. And it's just a great event. It's something you look forward to as a kid. If you have good weather like they had this year, it's like the best day of the year for someone from 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 a kid from Boston. You get the day off from school and any other of your friends that don't live in massachusetts they don't get the day off from school which is even better right like that you're the only it's like hanukkah it's like how jewish kids try to you know well we have eight days of hanukkah you only have one day (laughs) some christian fucks will say oh yeah we have 12 days of christmas It's like not really that's just a song you don't actually have eight days of hanukkah you get socks every single day We get a lot of socks. Anyway, so it's also because it's a marathon, and I think this is true of a lot of marathons, and it's definitely true in Boston because this has such a tradition. It's a very nice event because it's just a big kind of communal gathering, and and you're just handing out waters to people you don't know or right. food if you don't if uh, if they don't. And any runner that's passing by, you come prepared 
with any way that you can help them. And if you don't have any food, you're at least cheering them on. And you're cheering on people who are – you're not cheering on like the best marathon who are doing this as part of their career. You're cheering on people who are uh, just – doing it because it's pretty cool to run a marathon and and to be able to do that and you go and you show your support and it means a lot to the runners i mean we do this in houston we have a little marathon in houston and every you know it's a nice it's already a nice event that me my daughter and my wife go out and we're cheering people on giving them water doing whatever you know being with our neighbors it's it's just a it's just a beautiful just day of just pure positivity and then this happens and you know yeah. i think that's why even though the death toll for right now is at three and of course one of those is a eight-year-old boy big bruins fan you know which is horrible i mean obviously that's horrible enough but i think one of the reasons why this is has this kind of emotional sh- resonance shocking just uh is, is that it's juxt like this, this this terrible act of total brutality juxtaposed with this with like the, the, the opposite of, the of that right, yeah right, the, right. the 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 kind of just pure just this celebration yeah. of of you know like stuff that Boston doesn't have all the time right we're not a especially friendly it's generally city. miserable place yeah we right. generally have a miserable <laughs> group of people that aren't friendly. and to be and fair like, part of that is from your long long tradition of horrible baseball from what I understand it is um, it's, it's, it, yeah and it's just a sort of northeastern I mean that's I think not just right. typical to Boston it's just the northeast uh, now yeah. living in the south every time I go up to anywhere in the northeast I just assume that people are angry at me because <laughs> they're it's just true. like you don't you don't get treated like that when you move to the south from the from the northeast man you're like really deeply suspicious of why people are looking at you and smiling and saying hi you're like what do these idiots want from me like (laughs) who are you (laughs) or sometimes if you're like me you know and it's a it's a it's a girl you'll be like oh she must like me like it yeah. took me a while to just realize no she has no interest in you she's just friendly because people like, are friendly like, a strip a strip club must be a horrible time for you like, oh. i actually did have that uh, i was convinced no was no like, bro she gave me your number it's like, like look i'm really flattered but i'm getting married in a couple of weeks and i just you know I, I, <laughs> I, I didn't I actually say feelings. that to her, but I was sort of planning. I sort of figured I would have to say it. And I was, how do I let this strip her down gently? <laughs> Such, so embarrassing. Uh, uh, all right. So, but what pisses me off about, I mean, you do this, it's totally indiscriminate, and there are kids everywhere. This is a day where there are kids. Right. Yeah. So if you're going to set off one of these bombs, chances are and, – and I'm sure that you know it didn't work as well as, as, as was, was hoped for. Chances are children are going to be the most hurt. Uh, and right. of course, a lot of ch- the, the children – a lot of children have, be- have lost limbs because of this. And, and nobody's even claiming responsibility. Like, right. S- I know. At, I, at know some, like, so what I have, are you doing this for then? Is it just for, you know, at this point it sounds like, what are you just dedicated to a life of pure evil? I mean, even the 9 I know. It's bombers, like a comic book villain, right? It's like a comic yeah. book. And, I, you know, like to, to, to add to that point, right, where, you know, I, I was actually not sure whether I, I even wanted to talk about this, but, but Tamler convinced me, but – Mainly because of the energy that you have from being from Boston and being so close to home, I honestly so feel like it's it's almost disrespectful of me to, to to like try to add us any like psychology to this or whatever. But there is one thing that fucking pisses me off, which is, uh, look, it's all terrorism is horrible, but like to put a fucking bomb in a mailbox where kids are, it's like. There's there's something to be said about the suicide idiots, like absolutely, we're at least, we're at least they're like. You know, you're convinced that this is a this is a deeply personal thing for them, as wrong and twisted as that is. And they're willing to die for it. They're willing to die. This for guy it. wasn't willing to do anything for it yeah. except just cause or, the or damage. gal or gal. Sorry, yes. <laughs> sexist. I mean, there's no way a woman. <laughs> there's no way. <laughs> there's absolutely no way. I will uh, eat my hat. <laughs> so here's the thing that I've been really 
kind of gratified by it, just sort of a positive element of the way Americans have reacted to this, and especially Bostonians. First of all, and a lot of people have seen these videos of these people just after the first bomb goes off, rushing in to try to help the people yeah. who are wounded. And then even <clears throat> after the second bomb goes off, doing that. At that point, you're going in there. You're really you, – you, you're legitimately risking your life at that point to go help people instead of just probably succumbing to – the the greatest instinct you have for survival which is to just run like hell the other it's way it's amazing do and you think you would do you think you would run in you know I, i'd love to think i would i don't think I you ever know that I, I mean you know those are the moments in life that you just hope you're going to do the I right know. thing and because I, I, I honestly like this isn't a joke like i try to prepare myself for those kinds of things to get myself into a mindset of, you know, going against my cowardly instincts in those kinds of situations, just yeah. because I know that there's going to be a big part of me that wants to give in to those. That's why I play instincts. violent video games. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's, that's the, that's the, uh, apparently there's been a lot of research that that's what will help you be a good person. It's true. Play, play it's true. Uh, but here's the other thing, and this doesn't have to do with those people who ran and helped and, you know, the, the bravery that they displayed. I feel like people aren't blowing this completely out of proportion, which is rare yeah. for an American tragic event, right? They're recognizing that this was a horrific Act, yeah. But they're not immediately blaming whoever it is that's designing security for the marathon. Nobody, everybody's already committed to running the marathon next year, and oh, dude, I bet you they're not gonna get letting record, this affect their lives. Yeah, I bet you they get a record number of of uh, applications to run the marathon next year. Yeah, there, it's like all of a sudden there's like a stoicism that America has never displayed, or not that that's not true that I. I I totally take that back. But that recently, you know, anytime there's an act like this, it seems like people are either out to make a political point right away or they're out to uh, blame somebody or they're going to completely overreact on the safety side. Like right. the, the school after the Newtown shooting, my our, our school just completely revamped its security procedures and actually made the kids, made all the kids in my daughter's school have a drill of what you do when a shooter uh, enters the school and how you handle that. I mean, this is where, you know, that's the kind of thing that drives me crazy because he, the chances of that drill actually – First of all, the chances of a school shooter going in are infinitesimal, but the chances of the, that – then you multiply that by the chances that this drill will make any difference from the students, and, and, right. and it's just beyond astronomically low. But here's the 100% chance of what happens when you do this drill is you scare the shit out of right. six-year-olds and seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds. You know, this is where Israelis, you know, just because these <laughs> things used to happen all the time – but also the British during the Blitz uh, oh, yeah. in World War II. No, I like, know. I think the same thing. Like, being in Israel, it's like, yeah, you know, like, this should happen, that should happen, and they take it in stride. And I think I think maybe this is a reflection, the, 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 the Boston thing, uh, the, the amazing, you're right, there's an amazing restraint on the part of people in the press. It's just kind of right bravery now. and courage. And it's yeah. Just... Yeah. And, and I think that that may be uh, just, uh, like, a, a consequence of 9-11, right? Like, a... Um, the severity of that and the mistakes that we prob that we made, although it might be very different if someone if someone took credit for it right away. And but here's the thing: why are they not claiming responsibility for this? So that at least this will, in their own warped mind, have gone like the, you know, like why aren't they telling the world why this was justified in their own warped mind? That's what yeah. makes it like a comic book villain is I it's know. just like they wanted to just hurt kids and a and a city that's you know celebrating something that they love and that's a hundred year old tradition do you think and, it was the yankees do you think it <laughs> well, <laughs> that would make it especially sinister you know that nice thing where boston the red Sox and the yankees logos are together and it says united we stand doesn't it look weird it does yeah yeah uh but it was something like i was 
weirdly touched by. Yeah, that. no, yeah, it's, uh, it was, it was. I mean, obviously the sport, like all of the whatever, like sports rivalries are just just so stupid when you actually consider them in the face of like actual, like real life. And you um, know, especially lately, people hate Boston sports. I mean, I, I've always, I've always hated it because of the Celtics, I guess. Right. Because you guys but, have been champions forever. Right, because the Lakers are such, you know, ex- examples of shame. You want to say nobility. something else offensive about Magic Johnson? Why don't you go? <laughs> Why don't you go at him? Go at him. <laughs> I, love, I think he's a great point guard and a great businessman. So, uh, but, but, but yeah, like, so it's also been weird to see people just appreciating Boston sports. Like, all of this is, is, is a little hard to sort of assimilate as a, Boston right. fan that just either is you know has is, is used to people just hating you or pitying right. you or well like it or not man Boston's gonna get a lot of love this is yeah. I think that uh, this will show a side of Boston that a, a lot of people don't know about because people are such assholes actually yeah. most yeah. of the time in the city yeah no it's true I knew one guy who was like a janitor but he was a math genius and then like he had to go to therapy. <laughs> And then, oh, wait. oh that guy, it's, it wasn't that his guy. fault, right? It, it, it wasn't his fault. It wasn't his fault. It, it took him a while to realize that. Like he could say it, that it wasn't his fault, but I don't think he fully internalized that it wasn't his fault until he had a kind of a breakthrough. Yeah. So uh, what else before we bring in Molly Crockett? We shouldn't say what else. Apparently that's a terrible thing as a stand-up comic to go, what else? Oh, really? Just shows you didn't prepare. <laughs> Forget we said that, or I'll edit it out. <laughs> Amazon, remember to click on our Amazon link. Yeah, right? you, we should pimp our stuff before doing it uh, embarrassingly with Molly on the line. Yeah, <laughs> rate us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, click the Amazon link. Are you going to put up a donor button like those fucks at Partially Examined Life? I don't have anything against those guys. I think they they're genuinely oh God, wonderful people. Art. And I, I, they I, can't I really... bump you up from TEDx to TED. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't. No, you're always. It's uh, a good. It's a decent strategy to be always nice to people. You should try it sometime. <laughs> you're not nice to me, but you just already. You just already know that I I'm not gonna do anything. Yeah, I've tried it. I think we're. I think we're good. Let's. All right. Well, we'll be back in our second segment with neuroscientist Molly Crockett. Back to Very Bad Wizards. With us now is Molly Crockett. Molly Crockett is a neuroscientist now doing a postdoc at University College London. Welcome to the podcast, Molly. Hello. Molly must be a good like 15 years younger than us. <laughs> I was looking at her CV and I'm like, wait, you got your PhD when I was trying to get tenure. <laughs> like so depressing. <laughs> We're going to be talking about a couple uh, about Molly's research and also, uh, well, one TED talk that she did uh, called Neurobunk or what's the TED talk called? Uh, beware Neurobunk. Beware of Neurobunk. Where? Which actually they came up with. It's they really did. Good. Yeah, I was going to. I was going <laughs> to ask you what your actual title was. My actual title is kind of embarrassing because I didn't really know what I was going to. It talk was like about. the effects of X on Y. <laughs> I made it very purposefully vague because they wanted the title quite far in advance and i wasn't exactly sure until uh the last oh, minute yeah I, that's hilarious that i do the same thing all the time all right, um, so I, I knew this was going to happen so let's just get it out of the way <laughs> you guys are going to talk about your ted talk experience or what it felt like to get bumped up from ted x to ted well, so what is ted salon actually measly little youtube TEDx talk and just <laughs> I, and just listen to you guys just it's okay bask your, in it. your so, mom loves so fine you. that's fine I, I prepared myself. I steeled myself <laughs> for this. So go ahead. Uh, no, no, Ted. So yours was Ted Salon, which is what? It's it's not TEDx, but it's like, is it like satellite TED? Um, no, it's a real TED. It's a real TED. Yeah. Oh, uh, it was. It's not a TEDx. So she has us both beat. <laughs> um, but it was filmed in London. Yeah, it was in London. Oh, okay. It was so, it was pretty small. I think about two or three hundred people. So let's talk about the study. So so the TED talk is sort of the difference between the study that you did 
and how it was reported in the popular press. So maybe just start out telling us what the study is that you actually did. Yeah, so um, I've been studying a neurotransmitter called serotonin, which does a whole bunch of different things. Um, It's involved in mood, it's involved in physiological processes, sleep, you know, hunger, sex, all sorts of things. I've been interested in how it relates to social behavior. And um, in humans, there are only a few ways that you can, that you can actually study this experimentally, um, because obviously there are limits to, to what we can do uh, with human subjects. And so one way that we can manipulate serotonin in the brain is to use this technique called tryptophan depletion, which um, basically uh, takes advantage of the fact that you can only make serotonin by getting tryptophan from the diet, which is an amino acid. You get it from food. Um, so we, we give people this really disgusting tasting sort of protein shake like substance um, that has a bunch of amino acids, but doesn't have tryptophan. And through various metabolic processes, um, about five hour, hours after we give people this drink, um, you can, uh, you can absor- sort of observe people's behavior when the brain is in a relatively low serotonin state because the brain hasn't gotten enough. Like, like Tamler's all the time. <laughs> have, you been take, have you been taking your antidepressants, Tamler? You, you look sad. You, you know, <laughs> I, my dog takes antidepressants. <laughs> so if I ever want to tr- see what that's like, my, I have a pit bull and he's... Uh, in fact, he's he's zonked out on Prozac right now on the couch, uh, but that just keeps him from killing all the other dogs in the neighborhood. <laughs> which you would, have uh, which is anyway. very relevant to yeah. to Molly's uh, research on. Yeah, continue. We've done a, a few studies now where we give people this this treatment. We compare compare it against a placebo treatment, which sort of looks and tastes the same, except for it it does contain tryptophan, so uh, it doesn't change brain levels of serotonin. And then we, we, we look at sort of how, how this, this treatment influences people's behavior in various tasks that we give them in the lab, one of which is the ultimatum game, which maybe you guys have talked about before. Yeah, we have. But yeah, we have right? I think, yes. Yeah. And just really quick for our listeners that may not know the, un- the ultimatum game, what that means is a, one person is given a certain amount of money and they're told to propose – uh, a split of that money with uh, with what is actually the participant in this study. Right. And so Tamler gets ten bucks. You can split that ten bucks with me. Right. Right. And I have the ability to accept it or reject it. If I reject it, neither of us gets money. Right. So it's always going to cost you to reject the money. But if I offer you one dollar and keep nine for myself, that's considered an unfair offer. And out of spite. Right. You would. I mean, we talked about this with the hand. Yeah, yeah, so it's a, yeah. You would, out of spite, reject that because because that's an asshole move. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Unless you're in like the the Machiganga, right? right. <laughs> in they which just case, they're them. just willing to take the dollar. Maybe like, they just have. They're really like, high hell yeah, money. the dollar. <laughs> well, I mean, the truth is, if it were ten thousand dollars and you made me a one thousand dollar offer, I'm sure I would take it too. Um, that's because you're more Jewish than I am. (laughs) See, I never say anything. We found that when we give people this drink that lowers their serotonin levels, they're uh, more likely to reject unfair offers and ultimatum game. And, um, and what are the, so, so how much, like, what are the percentages? It's how much is it affected? It's not a huge effect. It's about maybe 15% difference. So like maybe you're 65% likely to reject an unfair offer if you're on placebo and that goes up to 80 percent um if you're if you're depleted um, and is this confederate is it like how unfair is the offer is this a confederate that's doing it we we have a range we have a range of offers that we give people um ranging from i think 20 percent are the worst to Mm. to 50 percent which are the nicest ones you can sort of bend them into 20 percent offers 30 percent offers and 50 percent offers okay so that's the study now let me uh, yeah let me actually point out though that this these are very nice experiments because unlike so much neuroscience where you can't where you often are just looking at correlations of brain activity they're actually able to go in there and manipulate these levels of serotonin right so they can and the and even though you didn't want to hear about the other study tamler it was actually just it's the it's nicely the opposite finding because they reduce serotonin in one case and then they spike it in another case and they show the opposite so like more serotonin makes you just i, I how would you just characterize it more well, less likely to harm 
Yeah, passive? well, I mean, we're, we're working out the mechanisms right now, but I think it seems like people are more benevolent or forgiving um, when when we enhance serotonin with the SSRI and they're, and they're more spiteful and sort of retributive when, when we lower serotonin. We're, we're doing a lot of follow-up work right now, but I, a sort of working hypothesis is that what serotonin is doing is it's actually sort of um, influencing sort of how much we value other people's outcomes. So like really working on social preferences in the striatum. Um, which is a brain region involved in, in value processing. How are you measuring their serotonin levels? How do you know if the drink works? We take blood samples um, at the beginning, before we give them the treatment, sort of at baseline, and then just before we test. And we look for sort of uh, changes in the plasma in, in tryptophan levels. We can't actually go into the brain. That would involve <laughs> doing a spinal tap or... Uh, other I mean, if they die by mistake, right? <laughs> <laughs> but back when, the, back when the technique was developed um, about 20 years ago, they actually did collect simultaneously blood samples, but also um, uh, cerebrospinal fluid samples from a spinal I feel really bad for the people. Do you, do you wish that you were a scientist back in the day before the IRB <laughs> when you could just pretty much do whatever the hell you wanted and nobody would raise a fuss about it? <laughs> um, uh, do I have to answer that? <laughs> well, I, I, the reason I'm not asking Dave is I know the answer. He he wants to go back to like the you know the Nazis you know uh, <laughs> experimenting on Jews and stuff for the greater. So yeah, so silence is the only response to those kinds of. I can't. <laughs> um, so yeah, we. I mean, um, yeah, we can't actually confirm. Um, that the brain levels were depleted in our subjects, but we we know from animal studies using this technique and from previous studies in humans with this this technique that it does reliably reduce serotonin levels. So you're not Diedrich stoppling your data, is what you're saying? <laughs> no, um, that's and, always good to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that um, the Dutch guy that faked all his data? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, we also were able to look in the brain and see what was happening as we were doing this. And, and basically what we found was, was that um, uh, most, most or even all of the effects of, of our serotonin manipulation could be explained by changes in responses in the striatum, um, specifically when people are, are rejecting. So there have been pr- several previous studies showing that when you reject unfair offers, um, your striatum is, is active and, and it's just sort of, I mean, yeah, definitely an oversimplification, but the whole like revenge is sweet thing kind of fits. Oh, that's, that. that's, we must have huge striatum because <laughs> <laughs> uh, relative size is clearly what matters. Um, <laughs> I, I did. I, that was my suspicion that this would show up in the striatum. So you, you had yeah. an a priori hypothesis about a brain yeah, region uh, that you can't even pronounce. It's just a hunch. But, uh, <laughs> actual, um, uh, so this actually gets to, to top, a topic that, that I think would be interesting to talk about, which is... Just to not oh, yeah, yeah. thread of this, can we talk about sort of how this was reported before oh, we yeah, go? Yeah. Yes, we're digressing. So yeah. Um, the trajectory of the research was we did our first behavioral study, which was tryptophan depletion on the ultimatum game. That got published in science, and as papers that get published in science tend to get massive amounts of media coverage, it was like a total shitstorm. Like, I I was a, a second-year PhD student, and I had never, like, this this is my first, first authored, authored paper, so I had never talked to a journalist before or anything. Oh, God. Um, and it was like sort of feeding me to the lion's den kind of thing. Um, I got a lot of calls and emails from journalists reporting on the study. And, um, you know, reporters in the media always want, what is the practical implication? of this? Right. Like, what can our readers use in their daily lives? What application does this result have for, for our readers' daily lives? And the angle that that they picked up on is like, well, tryptophan, tryptophan is in food and tryptophan is in chocolate and <laughs> cheese. And even though we depleted tryptophan in our study and, and found these effects on decision-making that somehow turned into, well, 
tryptophan is good and tryptophan will help you make better decisions so so that's uh, the link i don't get so how did they so, get from so for so the yeah. cheesy secret to successful decision making was one of the headlines <laughs> or right. uh Got a big decision. But, but where's the successful decision-making? Yeah, I, I know. That's the, well, yeah. yeah, so that's another large leap, right, as they go from, well, I think it comes from that. And again, these are just lots of connecting the dots. Like, um, well, one way to frame the ultimatum game, which I actually don't agree with, is like rational decisions versus emotional decisions, right? right? So like if you accept the unfair offer, then that's rational. And if right. you reject it, that's irrational. Right. So the idea is that, oh, well, if we take away tryptophan, that makes people reject more. Therefore, people are irrational. Ergo, if you give people tryptophan, that will make them more rational, even though that's not what we tested. And right. I suspect, actually, if you were to give tryptophan supplements, it wouldn't have any effect because the, the enzyme that converts tryptophan to serotonin is actually um, pretty much saturated at baseline. So if you give people more tryptophan, it's not really necessarily going to make a, a difference because the enzyme is already sort of at full capacity. It's only really when you take away tryptophan that you see effects. So, so there's so many problems, right, with that? But yeah, so, so, so the idea is because you accept unfair offers, that's a better decision? That, yeah. that is the implication, yeah. I mean, even I'm, that is so bizarre, right? I mean, you know, that's certainly not. I, yeah. uh, but it, but it is the way that people talk about. Like, it's usually I think economists talk about it as as a hypothesis to be defeated, which is this classical economic view that short term self interest is what rationality is, and so therefore you should accept the dollar. But so, isn't that yeah. just hasn't Homo economicus uh, view of human behavior hasn't that just been stomped on and kicked around? Dude, and, it makes for a catchier headline, dude. <laughs> you know, don't don't hate on them. All right, so so let's go. So so the 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 number of inaccuracies. First of all, trip design doesn't have any effect really on your decision. Wait, what's it called? Well, trip, well I mean, it's that's trip design. Trip to fan. Trip to fan. So well, we haven't we haven't done the study with with ultimatum game. There have been other studies on trip to fan supplementation in other decision making tasks like um. Uh, like time discounting, for example, or uh, like the, the framing effect, I think. Um, and from what I can remember, those effects are quite, if, if they're present at all. Um, whereas tryptophan depletion is a really reliable method. Like, uh, yeah, designs replicate this. I hope they control for stuff like if you give your participant chocolate, that, that might affect their judgment, even if, <laughs> even if it's not via tryptophan and serotonin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, so so you know that that's what gets picked up on, and so then this this story, which is you know sort of a very rigorous neuroscience study of of social preferences, gets turned into like eat chocolate to make better decisions, which is an awesome headline. I'm sure it got a lot of page views, right? But um, you know, the frustrating thing too is that I actually worked with a lot of really really good science journalists who sent me the articles for my approval before they got published and they were great. And then what comes out in the paper, the, he the, the headline and a lot of the details in the study get changed by the editors who have never spoken to me and know nothing about, like they haven't read the paper. There's a big problem that headline writing is separated from the journalist. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, I was just reading something today where uh, it was about cognitive, it was about cognitive training and it was like somebody published a review essentially saying that like there's no good evidence that brain games make you any better. Oh, right. um, and so they point to they, they point in the article, the quote from the authors is something like, uh, I think, though, that more research needs to be done and researchers should look at simple, simple tasks like solving puzzles um, as a method to to really to do more studies. Mm -hmm. And the headline is uh, to avoid it's like something like to avoid Alzheimer's, do more puzzles. What? Researcher, researchers say, and oh it's like, what? and you could just tell like these people are probably on the phone hedging and trying to be really like careful as scientists, and they're like, well, there's not enough research, but one easy methodology might be to introduce more puzzles in it, no, and then a, and then they just run with it, right? It's like, a real problem. No, I mean I've actually started telling journalists now, like when because every interview that I do at the end, they're, they're always asking, well, so what are the practical implications of this? <laughs> and I've started actually telling them, you know what? I don't know because mm -hmm. I do basic science research and it's a cumulative slow process. And frankly, like highly unlikely that any one study is going to give practical advice 
to, to, to the public because that's not how science works. And I think it's better for everyone to know that. Than- but that's not as catchy a headline. Neuroscientist <laughs> claims no practical implications <laughs> from recent study. I know. So, right? I feel like – do you feel like there's even more even more pressure on you as a brain scientist? Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean I think maybe but not necessarily because there's any fundamental difference between psychology and neuroscience. But I think like neuroscience right now is in this really kind of unique time, right, where it's, it's you know, especially cognitive neuroscience and neuroimaging. Like it's been around long enough where we we, we know fairly well what we're doing, but – Obviously, there's still a ways to go in that as well. But, um, you know, the, the public desire to see pictures of brains just seems to be, like, insatiable. What and- do you think the source of that is? Because my hypothesis would be, you know, something along the lines of what Dave's old advisor, Paul Bloom, has argued, which is that people are implicitly dualist. And so there's something extra striking about this idea that the brain causes behavior. And, like, a social psych study won't make that as vivid. Yeah, I think it could be. I mean, I think also, you know, people are are very visual and the, the news is, is very, you know, pictures worth a thousand words, right? And so, you know, it's really easy to have an image to go with the story when your study is composed of brain images, whereas, you know, bar graphs are not that exciting. Um, <laughs> I try I try to make mine really pretty. But, but I mean, what, a brain <laughs> image in isolation is not that interesting because we don't know, oh, look, this is activated, that's activated, the stratum, if that's even a part of the brain. <laughs> I, I don't know anything I think that's the dorsal fin. The dorsal fin. Right. I mean, the only one I know that everyone talks about is the amygdala, and then because of your <laughs> TED Talk and a couple couple other things the insula <laughs> yeah you are a philosopher like I want... no i think i think that the dualist thing is a is, is a really good point and and certainly a possibility and and sort of related to that i wonder if if the fact that there are these brain regions that have names and we can sort of visualize them it sort of right. creates this host of characters like you know oh the you know i mean this is why i think i'm gonna I I know from previous uh, podcasts that Dave, one of your favorite topics is is dual systems. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which system in the brain was active? Actually, was it the one or the two? Until <laughs> um, so this, right? Like, it's know, the amygdala but, or the cognitive part. I know, you know, right. the, like the amygdala versus the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, right. like duking it out. It's like this battle, a big battle. <laughs> right, as journalists say, the emotional centers of the brain. And then they yes. and then they toss in even like the prefrontal cortex and like the and the cognitive centers and the cognitive centers. <laughs> it's not just journalists. That's what I'll say in like my intro. You know, I mean, I I actually feel really uncomfortable with 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 those terminologies and and you know it, it's it's really it's really really difficult actually to write neuroimaging papers without resorting to some sort of uh, you know caric- caricature of like this system and that system, right. you know, it's a really, really easy and, and, and handy sort of, um, terminology to, to just, uh, fall into. And I mean, even, even I think the, the most respected neuroscientists do that in, in their papers to a certain extent. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really hard not to do. It's like trying to write a paper without using the letter E or something. <laughs> like, right. But so, so to what extent do you think – I mean a, a lot of this is journalists and he, now, now the scapegoat seems to be headline writers. <laughs> uh, but to what extent are neuroscientists partially responsible at oh, least? Oh, no. I mean I think, I think a lot of the responsibility lies in scientists because you know, ultimately you know, it, we are the ones doing the research and we are the ones who understand the research and I've interacted with a lot of journalists and like they're really trying to do a good job and if they're not getting it right I mean I'm sure that there are unscrupulous editors out there who just want to get the page views but there are a lot of really well-meaning journalists who try to really be accurate and and it's our responsibility as scientists to to make sure that they get it right and um, I don't know sort of what the what what people mostly sorry I'm 
getting it now. I've been talking for a while. It's feeling pressured. <laughs> no, it's, I think it's true. Like, I think that the right, the right, the, like I've talked to, to journalists who are really careful and take a lot of time, but as careful as they are, they're also not scientists. So I think that one of the things that we have to do, like say with our students or something, is to train them. I think that over time I've been, it's, you learn the hard way that like your words may get twisted. And so you have to like pick the message and keep hammering it home. Right. Cause or else like someone will change it. And even if they don't, some blogger will like, it doesn't matter. Right. Without naming names. uh, (laughs) What? So give me an example of how a neuroscientist might be partially responsible for a, a study getting blown out of proportion. Oh yeah, I mean, well, I mean, neuromarketers are are terribly guilty of this. Um, that that the the piece I mentioned in the in the TED talk um, by this guy Mar- Martin Lindstrom. You know, he he claims to do these neuroimaging studies, but they never get published. Like I don't I don't know how. Like why are we supposed? To, you know, why should I believe you that you found this result? I don't. You you have shown us nothing about. Your it's proprietary. <laughs> so he's just a pure charlatan. I mean, is he just a scam artist? This guy, or we just have no. There is no information to evaluate him. So anyway, he he publishes this this um, this uh, op-ed in the New York Times saying they've done this fMRI study where they showed people pictures of iPhones. <laughs> and their insula is lit up, and because the insula is the love area, this means that people love their iPhones. <laughs> yeah, like... and the minute I heard that, like from somebody who's who reads about disgust all day long, it's also it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like the one area that's imp- imp- implicated in disgust. Like if there is, yeah, one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, you love your iPhone, and yet you are disgusted by your iPhone. Like it's just you know. I actually oh, think that but... kind of describes my relationship with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. That also describes my relationship with you. <laughs> yeah, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> um, without the love. Part. Without the love. Just the. What are the bad parts of the brain, Molly? Quick, give me some. <laughs> what are the Stratum. the evil system and the good system? <laughs> that will be a study, right? Evil part of the brain. The evil part happening. of the brain. The oh, wasn't the, the central lobe? Did you did you hear about that? Did you see that one? No. There was some people. It got, I don't know if it was the scientists. I think it was the journalists wrote this piece on like that they had discovered that psychopaths have an enlarged central lobe. Oh right, 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 right. Which <laughs> is like, wow, we've evolved a new lobe. Can we take a quick break? Do you have another ten or fifteen yeah. minutes to do? Yeah, I, I, it, of right. course. Yeah. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizard. Talking over the break um, with Molly Crockett, who is our guest today, you were saying that you got your PhD in psychology and that you only really do fMRI research when it can tell you about behavior. But really what you're interested in is in human behavior. When can fMRI actually provide insight to human behavior or human nature, the stuff that you're interested in? Yeah, that is a great question. And I, if I knew the answer, I'd be <laughs> very successful scientist. No, I, I think, um, I think that's really the goal as a, as a sort of neuroscientist and psychologist is to, to find questions for which looking to the brain can actually help us understand more about the mind. And, you know, there, there are a handful of studies, I think that, that have done this, um, that, that really is the goal, I think. So um, what's an example of a study where the brain research is actually really helpful and to understand something that we otherwise would not have understood? Well, um, I guess I can take an example from my recent study that we were talking about earlier, um, which is maybe not the best example, but sort of gets, I think, closer to, to this goal, right? So um, we had shown with our earlier study that manipulating serotonin makes people more likely to retaliate when they think they're treated unfairly. Right? And there could be many reasons 
many psychological reasons explaining why this happens. So one possibility is that, um, well, when we when we manipulate serotonin, that that this this changes sort of people's levels of self control, for example. So you might think that, oh well, you know, someone who's self controlled would be less likely to retaliate. Um, and, and indeed, we had, we had shown actually in a different study that if you correlate people's sort of impulsivity, so their, their preference for a smaller, sooner reward against a larger, later reward, um, that this correlates with, with rejection of unfair offers in the ultimatum game. Um, so it, it is certainly possible that, that you know, this could be a self-control kind of thing. Um, as opposed to just you're feeling more retributive kind of thing. Yeah. So the other the other possibility is that you just prefer retribution. Like you, it, it feels better to you um, when when serotonin is low, and that it's that it's more more of a sort of value calculation that that's changing rather than like you care about it the same. It's just a, a self control issue, um, right. and we would expect to see different patterns of brain activity based on those two hypotheses. But of course, you can't really arbitrate between them just by observing people's behavior. Um, and so what we found is that the, the serotonin manipulation doesn't really influence people's uh, brain activity in, say, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is a, an area that's been implicated in self-control and has been shown to be involved in ultimatum game decisions even in other studies. Um, we found all the effects in the striatum, which suggests it's more uh, influencing value. Um, so that's that's one example where I think the imaging helps. So it reduces the number of possible explanations for the behavior. Yeah. Uh, the, the number of possible psychological explanations for the mm -hmm. behavior. In your judgment, as the techniques become more refined, is that something that will be you know more and more useful as the techniques get better? Yeah, I think so. And and actually, I think that the constraint is not so much the technology, but our ability to ask good questions and to design good experiments. So um, one thing that I'm working on now, um, the reason I went to UCL, in fact, is is there's a sort of um, a, a slightly more sophisticated way to do fMRI um, that involves uh, creating a, a behavioral task um, where you construct a model of subject's behavior that has different parameters. So the easiest way, to, the, the easiest example um, to illustrate this is like a reinforcement learning task. So subjects are trying to learn sort of which of two options will give them more rewards, and it's the environment is sto stochastic, so they can't really pursue a deterministic strategy. And um, you can sort of uh, vary throughout the task the probability with which any of either of the options is going to be rewarded and then you have a model that sort of has a parameter that tracks the expected reward uh, available in any one option. And then what you do is you regress that parameter against the brain activation um, and so instead of having just a sort of crude comparison between two conditions um, and you see is this area more active in condition A than condition B you actually have a really fine-grained sort of trial-to-trial -trial estimate of what the pattern of activity should look like. So, you know, at the beginning it starts a high probability and then it sort of goes down a bit and then up again and then down a bit and then up again. And so that really constrains sort of um, the set of regions that, that you would expect to show that pattern. And if you do find a region that shows the exact pattern of sort of the learning curve in your task, then that's going to give you a lot of confidence that that brain region is probably doing what you think it's doing. That's very nice, actually. That, but that does get to something that we were talking about in the break, too, which is that as an fMRI researcher now, you apparently have to have a degree in computer science because I cannot <laughs> imagine programming all that shit, analyzing all that data. Yeah. And like, I'm just like, give me SPSS and give me like a pull down menu for a t-test. Yeah. <laughs> That's like a dissertation that you just described. Yeah, no, I mean, it's not as hard as it sounds, actually, but... Yeah, I can tell you how to uh, date. <laughs> after, after the podcast. Just after five minutes like after the couple, show. Yeah, about ten minutes. <laughs> All right, yeah. so can I ask something now, uh, just to get you to speculate a little bit? Um, so, from what you know, um, and what you've learned, from, both from your research and the research of others about, about the brain, especially about drugs and, and moral behavior... Um, what can we say about moral behavior? Like, so it sounds like what, one thing that you've discovered is that 
that really it's our it's our impulsive nature that's leading us to reject um, unfair offers. And you know, with things like increasing serotonin or decreasing it, you can show that that maybe when we're calm, cool, and collective, would be more peaceful. We'd be less likely to harm others, and we'd also be less likely to exact vengeance. Do you think that this paints a picture of of how we ought to act at all? Yes, yeah. and, yes, and no. So, I mean, I, I I agree with everything you said, but I also want to point out um, some other data coming from uh, a really really smart colleague of mine, um, Dave Rand. Who's oh yeah, I love Dave. Yeah, yeah. Great. So he's got some really cool data showing that. Um, that people are also impulsively cooperative. Right. So, this is paper with Josh Green. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's, I, I don't know. Like if, if you, so we don't know shit is what you're saying. <laughs> well, I mean, so it's, I mean, it's a really, it's really interesting, right? So it, impulsivity is good in some cases, but it's, it's bad in others. But I mean, I think it all boils down to sort of instinctually, we have these, these really deeply ingrained social preferences, which, incline us to cooperate with those who are going to cooperate with us, but also to punish those who screw us over. And, mm. you know, there are two sides of the same coin, I think like, you know, right. You know, but it's somehow probably... it's, it's more, you're making a better decision to not punish the guy that screws you over. Well, that really depends, right? So it depends on... I mean, just according to the journalists uh, who equate <laughs> not punishing right. people. Right, 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 right. Screw you over, yeah. Totally depends on context, right? So if you're in a repeated interaction with someone, it's a really rational thing to reject low offers initially because then that sort of sends a signal that you shouldn't be messed with. Um, Isn't it just rational in general? Even if it's, there's not going to be a repeated interaction, I mean, well, how much is this money going to mean compared to your integrity as a person? Well, that is a really good point. And, and if you consider that value encompasses more than money, which obviously it does, then, you know, people are maximizing in a way when they reject offers in the ultimatum game. They're just maximizing something other than money. They're, they're showing that their, yeah, their integrity or sense of honor or whatever is, is more important than the 50 cents or, or how. So, right. yeah, that's, so actually, um, Tamler, then, if you, got, if you got, uh, un, got into an ultimatum game with somebody and it was $10,000 and they split it with you and they gave you 1000 you and you rejected it. Let's say that your your honor and your pride actually. Do you actually view this as a rational decision on your part? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, obviously the amounts matter. Right? Or would you regret it though? You know, like right. would you would you regret having been motivated by anger and and impulsively rejecting it? Would you be like, shit, I should have just taken that one thousand dollars? I'd say, I mean, <laughs> the amounts matter, and it, and there's no like you know, a thousand dollars is a great example because you know. You could look at that one either way. $1,000 is not going to make or break my life in any real meaningful right. way. Yeah. Uh, but it would be nice, right? That's a nice <laughs> vacation for, you know, for me and Jen. And, you know, so, you know, the, like those are where, you know, your integrity is tested. But, but, you know, if it's a smaller amount, even if it's like $50 or $100, like, no. You know, you then you stand... Yeah, you gotta you gotta be principled. It reminds me of Pulp Fiction. Every man a, has to have a code, right? That's pride fucking with you, Butch. That's pride. That's right. <laughs> see, look, see, it all worked out for Bruce Willis. He's go off with that annoying French girl. Oh, that girl's so annoying. <laughs> so, can I ask one hey. pet question? Yeah. Since you study serotonin, yeah. Have you ever tried one of those drugs like DMT? And just gotten your serotonin going bonkers, Wait, like the it's a hallucinogen, dimethyltryptamine, or like LSD. You know these drugs that are hallucinogens no. that are. No, 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 no. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know of them, but no, I yeah. haven't. Um, I, I mean, I, yeah, I definitely would be curious. Um, yeah, <laughs> so MDMA, apparently actually, they get serotonin going crazy, and so I was well, just MDMA, wondering. MDMA ecstasy is like massive, massive. I've never heard of that drug. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, wait. Those are two different drugs. As somebody who has a yeah, personal they familiarity all, they both, with they both, so they, boost... both, they both have effects on serotonin. So MDMA just causes basically all of the neurons that are storing up serotonin to dump out all their serotonin into the synapse at the same time. It causes a massive rush of serotonin. Um, then there's a hangover afterwards because all yeah. the neurons have just used up all their serotonin, I which I suck. I've yeah. heard <laughs> <laughs> um, um, 
I, the like LSD and, and the hallucinogens, I think actually activate a specific kind of serotonin receptor, which I believe is a 2C receptor, although I could be wrong. But... You could say pretty much anything you wanted in that sentence and I'd be like, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, it binds to the receptor it, 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 and mimics the actions of serotonin. What accounts for the different phenomenology then? Because they're completely different phenomenology. You don't yeah, feel so... lovey-dovey. On LSD. I've actually never taken LSD. I can admit it. Yeah. So, I mean, MDMA just, just causes a massive, it's very nonspecific. So it has a, just dumps all the serotonin out. So, I mean, there are 14 different kinds of serotonin receptors. So all the serotonin is just activating all those different receptors um, with MDMA. Whereas with LSD, it's just activating a specific type of receptor. So it's going to be much more specific. Do you feel sort of tempted to just take these drugs just so you'll sort of <laughs> have access to something that you don't have access to if you haven't taken them? Having studied psychopharmacology, it's like a two-edged sword, right? Because I'm deeply curious about what they'd be like, but I'm also, I know what they do, and I'm, so that makes me sort of more concerned about the long-term uh -oh. effects. So those two courses have managed to sort of keep, yeah, the, the fear has kept the curiosity in check so far, um, but. In the end, though, you have to, the science is what really matters. And you know. <laughs> I actually think that, uh, that you really should do um, Ultimatum Game with Ecstasy. <laughs> well, I think so that... I actually, so I'm actually, I'm collaborating with a study. So in Switzerland. Um, it's required. <laughs> in Switzerland, you can do crazy stuff with psychopharmacology. So in the rest of the world, you can't do MDMA studies on anyone except for current ecstasy users. Um, which is a problem because those aren't really representative right. of the normal population. But in Switzerland, you can do MDMA studies on healthy volunteers who've never... With deception even? Like placebo studies? With... Like, yeah, placebo-controlled studies. Oh, man. Yeah, so you can so tell doing... people that they're on ecstasy when they're not, and you can... How does that work? No, well, I don't know, because I didn't run the study, but um, I... You I just slip it in their drinks without them knowing, or what? <laughs> no, 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 it's a placebo-controlled like, placebo study, so you give people something, um, but you don't tell them if it's placebo or if it's MDMA, although I'm sure that they can, they must be able to tell. I mean, it's, Hopefully. It's, it's really hard to... I mean, so we they we use low doses, so it, um, it's it's not super obvious, but I, I'm, I haven't been involved in the data collection so I, I can't really say for sure what what the subjective effects were like in the subjects but um yeah we are collecting data on moral judgment on ecstasy <laughs> that is awesome that's awesome that is just so that's that it. is I science be a part of that experiment. <laughs> <laughs> whatever side of it uh, all right well all right. i think my daughter just got home so we should quickly wrap Good. up thank you and and please keep uh, keep us in mind for that drug study for any future <laughs> drug studies that you're you're I planning will. on running. <laughs> randomly mail, <laughs> randomly mailing ecstasy um, <laughs> to Tamler. <laughs> uh, thanks a lot, Molly. Sure. Appreciate it. For more information about this episode, including show notes and links. And to listen to other episodes, please visit us at www.verybadwizards.com. Just a very bad wizard.